This is episode 81 of The New Disruptors. Be kind, fast forward with Jamie Wilkinson. Permanent archives at newdisrupt.org. Hello, everybody. Thanks again for listening to another episode. Before we get started, I want to thank patrons and sponsors. As you know, this podcast has some costs and takes time to produce, and I appreciate everyone who contributes to making it possible. We can't do it without you. I'll start with Cards Against Humanity, which is helping to underwrite our indie ads. These are short, inexpensive advertisements that are intended for people who are independent creators, makers, artists, programmers, anyone with a solo or small business who is trying to make it on their own, much along the theme of this show. Cards Against Humanity is just that kind of business. They started small, and even though they're big, they maintain that spirit of independence, creativity, and the generosity that lets them support others. They just launched their own site, you know, for selling direct, so you can go to cardsagainsthumanity.com and find their products and order from them directly. This week's indie advertisers are GamerX. This is the inclusive gaming conference intended for everyone celebrating the diverse culture and history of gaming. Pixel Wits, handcrafted pixel portraits. Listen later in the show for a chance to win a custom portrait. Drink Control, helping you to keep track of moderate drinking and your drink expenses in an app. And an ebook novella called Scolding the Winds, currently being funded. You can help bring it into existence. Thanks also to our direct supporters through Patreon. Ben Wordmuller, Alex Bond, and Gary Pugh are just a few of the people helping to make this show possible through direct contributions. You can go to patreon.com slash newdisruptors, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and back this podcast for as little as a dollar a month. At higher levels, we'll thank you on the air, just like this, and send you mugs and t-shirts. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that suggests be kind, rewind, or at least clean your discs before you return them. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Jamie Wilkinson is the co-founder and CEO of VHX, a service that delivers movies online to the customers of filmmakers. They exist in a sharp contrast to the many video sites operated by the likes of Amazon, Apple, and others, in that VHX only delivers films free of digital rights management. They only take a sliver of the purchase price, and they truly facilitate filmmakers reaching their audiences. Jamie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's great because VHX kind of exemplifies this what I kind of call like a thin intermediator or a facilitator. You're not a gatekeeper. Seems like you're there to help people achieve their bliss, not to get in their way or 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 say, nah, we don't really like you, but we like you. Yeah, that's really core to our mission is the idea of being open to anyone and enabling anybody, big or small, really, to uh, use our software, use our tools. It's it's a neat thing because uh, uh, what I've heard from. Uh, trying to work with all of the stores, like you know, a- Apple's iTunes uh, store. That not that it's impossible, but it's a whole other kind of experience. It's not an internet experience where you go to YouTube and you upload a video. And yeah, I mean, there's money issues and whatever. But like, you upload a video and it's available. And these other outfits, a lot of the retailers are, even though it's all digital, the process is complicated. VHX, it seems like your goal is to make it as easy as possible, and you're using modern tools and kind of a modern approach to it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny how much uh, even, you know, digital distribution, sometimes we call it like traditional digital distribution, because it is still very much like this, like I'll 
mail you a hard drive whereas for us it's like you could just drag and drop from your computer that's as easy as it should be the youtube application of the world you know but yeah and that's what it seems like it should be right and but um it's funny that you say that's right. Traditional digital distribution sounds hilarious, but we see that with eBooks too, that if you make one eBook, I've just gone through this process trying to get it into channels. It's a nightmare because the tools are so terrible. The tools are 10 years old and the thinking is very old and then they want 30% or the, you know, 15% or what have you. The other way of thinking about it seems to be the VHX approach and that of um, new companies. So Kickstarter takes 5% or Etsy or some of the other firms that they want to push volume through. Is your goal, and I mean this, I guess, not necessarily financially, but from a, from a business philosophy standpoint, your goal is to get as much participation as possible that you want to push rather um, volume and let as many players in as opposed to saying we want this really restricted thing that we can take a big piece of? I think that's right. It's um, to me, it's almost a question of: Are you uh, trying to be the the store and the brand and the distributor, the curator, or are you just building the tubes? You know, and we've we've very consciously taken the direction of, of of wanting to be the tools and the tubes, and to not you know pick winners, so to speak. And uh, that's a job for somebody else. That's like a completely separate job. So. When looking at something like iTunes, where it is this political game of getting placement onto the front page of the store, that's not something we want to even suggest that we enable. Uh, so e- even though we, we do have ambitions to build kind of VHX as a, a, you know, it's a decentralized network of stores right now, uh, we have we have goals of kind of interlinking it and providing kind of central VHX utilities. But the front page would never be something where somebody needs to like buy me lunch or something to get on the front page. It would be something that's what we think of is like, what would iTunes look like if it was more like Reddit and more democratic, more open to everybody? That seems to be the growing philosophy of a lot of different sites. I think of Kickstarter because they're sort of a, they're such a big gorilla right now. They're taking in so much money, but they're distributing most of it. I mean, they distribute 95% of them. I mean, after fees, they take 5% and Amazon takes 3 to 5% for credit card processing, but they're really in the business of trying to push out as much money as possible. Yeah. You can't, you can't buy your way into the homepage of Kickstarter. The only way you buy your way on is by doing something really interesting and compelling that either other people find is compelling or that the staff at Kickstarter think, hey, this is kind of cool and we should highlight it absolutely and i uh i emailed uh yancy strickler the ceo of kickstarter early on when we were trying to figure out our pricing model and said i asked him how did you end up at five percent he said it's the lowest number we could justify <laughs> and it's worked right because as they've scaled the bigger they've gotten five percent is now five percent of a very large number but it's also uh they were more efficient they're dividing their costs more efficiently so they're actually making more money per dollar than they were when they were you know originally taking it in the early days yeah and we're operating on a similar principle our price is is a little higher just because working in the video delivery space our costs are a little bit higher and we also part of our pricing we have decided to bundle in the uh credit card transaction fee so when kickstarter says five percent it's like you're saying it's more like you know you could call it like ten percent exactly and so we just actually in our early days we had all kinds of pricing models that we tried out with customers and the one question that people always said was oh what do you predict that fee will be and uh, so we just built it into the price and said, we're going to call it 10% and 50 cents because it sounds nice and it covers most of our costs most of the time. Yeah, it averages out. And then you get the benefit over time as long as the price is right and that the market will help decide if the price is right. And so far, it seems like it is. Over time, if you get the benefit of uh, lower fees or um, credit card rates go down, maybe people switch to debit cards and it's one point. Yep. 3% or whatever happens, because you set that expectation for the fee, you can get the reward for that. Or you could choose to lower your fee, but you, you've you set a mark that you think 
uh, functions across all of your operations. You nailed it. Glenn, you're in the wrong business, man. You should start a, a software company. <laughs> I've, talk, I've talked to a lot of people about percentages. I, I want to, you know, cycle back before we get too deep into the, into the model and what you're doing, because you're not a, uh, like a filmmaker, movie guy. Like you're not this guy who's born in Hollywood and, and grew up in the industry and, and worked for Warner Brothers. You're a software guy. And, uh, I know that one of the things you're best known for is your project with Casey Pugh, Star Wars Uncut, as well as Know Your Meme, which is an incredibly invaluable resource for an old guy like me in my 40s. I know a lot of memes, but I have to go there and look some up. What was the path that got you into this industry? This is sort of a really specialized, interesting thing, although you're coming at it from a different angle. How did, how did you get here? Oh, great uh, question. Um, a, a little bit uh, DNA, I think, um, especially working with Casey. I mean, with Know Your Meme, we were very entrenched in the internet video space. And then Casey was one of the early developers of Vimeo, and we've always been huge video fans. And when I say video, like we don't really make a distinction between movies and TV shows and clips you see on the web. We always kind of considered it the same thing. So working together on different video projects with Star Wars Uncut in particular, we ended up winning a primetime Emmy in 2010 for uh, interactive media, outstanding achievement in interactive media. And that was actually kind of the first time that we, uh, I'd ever been to LA. Um, oh, that's great. And uh, we went, you know, we were in Hollywood and there's this big Emmy statue out front and it was very cool. And we're meeting people from all of the major studios and networks and talking to them about, you know, hey, what's your digital strategy? Like we were being celebrated as people who had built like a really great interactive experience for something. And I was like, yeah, what's your plan around doing more stuff like this? And um, there was just no vision. There was there was it was very uh, out of touch. It felt like 10 years behind it reminded me a lot of the disconnect that I saw with music people 10 years ago, 15 years ago, where they just were not in touch with what the consumer was doing, you know, and, and even kind of people be like, yeah, cord cutting, cord cutting that, you know, we know about it. Uh, but that's like a small percentage of people. And I would just have to reply and say, you know, it, is it a growing or decreasing percentage of people, you know, like let's talk for a second about inevitability and about the idea of getting ahead of inevitability and, uh, yeah, I know like you might take a hit in some capacity by making things more available by not using sort of your uh, very well established windowing process for releasing things. But there's something to be said for getting in touch with the consumers early and often something I think Netflix has done an amazing job with, right? It's and then there's this um, big gap it seems like between uh, reaching a, an audience and being able to deliver to their expectations. Uh, and there's a statistic I read I think it was in Chris Anderson's The Long Tail, and I don't think it's changed much in the years since. Is that only a few hundred films a year in America get released into uh, any kind of mass distribution in theaters, and of course the internet's changed how people view. And so there's still there's like 135,000 movie screens in America. So and it's it grew. I was just looking up the stats. It actually grew mm. slightly. So, but there, a lot of the screens that are being built are smaller because they can make money with smaller films and digital distribution of movies to theaters has reduced some of the overhead costs. It's made it easier to swap out. They can change mm -hmm. in a matter of seconds. And it's just this whole thing has changed. But that's a really narrow pipeline. And um, it's been very hard for people to figure out not how to make a movie. It's become maybe never easier in the history of humanity to, mm -hmm. to make a film of some kind, an animated uh, stop action documentary, whatever you want to do. Uh, and YouTube is proof of that and Vimeo and other sites. But it feels like there is a huge gap between between 
making a film that goes into broad distribution and makes back the money involved, or even maybe modest documentaries that don't go into huge distribution, but they play art houses and they play, you know, a smaller run, but they can maybe make the millions back there. And then there's was seemingly like no scale below that except labor of love. Is that is that a big area? Is there a space that's being created for people to make a living or make a, you know, I don't want to say profit because profit is more like if you're just paying yourself. But is there a space now for people that's being created to make smaller films that they could do and and not have it be a side project or a labor of love? Absolutely. I mean, uh, man, we see these every day on the platform now. And that's the stuff that really gets me excited and gets me like waking up in the morning, uh, you know, ready to book it to the office is that. Uh, there's small independent creators creating very high quality work that fans are responding to and they're responding by opening their wallets. And uh, I mean, this is why I was so excited when Andy Bayo started XOXO, um, which is a conference that I feel like is dedicated to this entire concept of, uh, you know, moving from like hobbyist into professional. It, but it's it spurred the creation of this podcast. That's why this podcast exists. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh yeah, and I think it's um, yeah, it, it is that middle middle ground in between labor of love and uh, you know, big corporate enterprise where uh, there's a lot to be said as I've learned more and more about how the industry operates. Like when your budget for your film starts to exceed a couple million dollars, when you start to get into the tens of millions of dollars, your creative control starts to dwindle. So there's this, there really is this sweet spot of uh, which I think Kickstarter funding is really hitting the nail on the head in terms of the budget size. That where you can retain total creative control, you can operate in a very open uh, process, like you can do whatever you want, basically, and you can still pay your rent at the end of the month, which to me, I, I think that for most creative people too, I think uh, that's really the goal is, is how do you make enough money to get by doing something that you love rather than like, oh, I'm here to like make gangbusters money. Let's go do, you know. Let's do sell internet ads or something. Yeah, because we all know the long uh, the long tail has a big head, which is very very thin, and the long tail is very very long. And there's a space I've probably mentioned it a million times to regular listeners. There's a thing that um, my friend Dave Sifri coined called the magic middle um, when he was at mm-hmm. uh, founded a site that was tracking blogs. And it's like it's the part that gets enough traffic that it's not sort of in passing, but it's not one of the big boys. So it's not maybe in the top uh, you know 98th percentile or 99th percentile, but there's enough going on there that you can do something. With it, and I've run a, I've run blogs like that. I've been in situations where I'm in that magic middle. So you don't get rich, but you do make a living. Uh, the funding part you were just mentioning, um, from what I understand about film, there used to be only a few ways that people could could fund it, and one was out of pocket, and some projects could take years to create or ruin people practically. And another, which could be in parallel to you know your own self funding, was to go after money to find investors, people who traditionally are involved in film when you're on a on a small scale. And then, you know, up from there you go to studios and you actually have to become part of the machine. And and as you say, you get that larger scale where there's so much more at stake, it becomes, you know, a meat grinder uh, often uh, to try to produce some kind of consistent result. But at the slow end now, um, I know there's multiple factors at work. How much is the drop in the cost of of production? I mean, you're on the distribution side, so I want to get to that. But how much is the drop in the cost of production affected uh, people's ability to make films of a quality that other people want to see, let's say? Now, I don't want to define what that means, but, you know, something mm-hmm. that is worthwhile uh, that you watch, you go like, this is a film that I want to watch. It doesn't have to be a Hollywood film, but is, has the means of production affected um, that substantially. Oh, undeniably, uh, it's that's really one of the two trends that I point to in sort of our investor pitch decks and in sort of our macro level thinking is 
absolutely that the drop in the cost of production, the availability of the means of production. And the other one is uh, the availability of social media and sort of the fact that discovery is really driven by people and word of mouth and by social media rather than being driven by advertising. But when it comes to production, I think Shane Carruth, uh, who we work with on uh, Upstream Color, who is the director of Primer, director writer primer um he shot upstream color on you know a prosumer camera i forget the exact model uh it's like a, a lumix uh camera where you know you could just buy it on amazon right now and it doesn't cost too much and he brought a huge amount of expertise to it where and yet i'm sure he had some really fancy lenses but it was still this was not like a dolly setup that required yeah. you know and we have so many examples of that. I mean, it, YouTube isn't, I think, the best place to look for that kind of quality necessarily. I mean, it, increasingly so. But it's interesting because we've always found that, like those two trends that I pointed out, the one about the cost of production, uh, I think that filmmakers, people who work, who, who like LA people, are doing an amazing job taking that and running with it. And then there's another category of, of really the YouTubers who are taking advantage of the fact that discovery is powered by people. But they're still making content that's that five minute, you know, clip that is targeted towards like a very specific group. And what I talk about all the time is starting like an exchange program between these two groups, because it's like, if you can bring sort of your long form narrative storytelling experience and combine that with somebody's uh, audience building experience, that is going to be the key to success in the future for, for people working in media. Well, and it's even, I mean, we we're talking about maybe specific developments, even things like the, was it the red camera? That's only, is it thousands of dollars? It's not hundreds of thousands, which thousands, it would have been yeah, years ago. I know people using this black magic camera too. That sounds like it's just like a wunderkind of cameras. Oh and, my God. And it's so cheap. I mean, I've got a, I've got like a thousand dollar Sony, uh, what is it, NEX six and the HD output on this, you know, not even, it's not even a prosumer camera. It's a lower end mirrorless camera and the output on it is terrifying. It's so good. And I'm thinking, so we don't have that same limit on tools. People still have to have uh, creative vision and expertise. They have to know how to shoot with these devices. And we've seen the iPhone movies that can be fantastic. I mean, mm -hmm. those, some of those, I just, I get blown away by some of the advertisements that are done, particularly, maybe there's a lot of post-production, but you still have to capture the stuff on the front end. You have to shoot it well. You have to shoot it with the right lighting and focus, and you have so few options. And, and it's, um, I think it's one of those things like the drop in the cost of storage over time or what have you that, right. that is astonishing. Yeah, and the, you know, the drop in the price of computing power, like now we don't even, I don't even know how fast my processor is. This you is know, awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And, and it's, and, you know, I still know how much hard drive space I have available, but I can't wait for that to go away too. And I think it's really interesting to draw those graphs where you're like, as, you know, as the cost approaches zero, what becomes important and, and to really think like five years out and, um, I feel like that is really what what XOXO was about. Uh, it sounds like that's what your, your podcast is addressing. And it's sort of, well, uh, okay, if we can make stuff for, let's say, zero dollars and it takes zero seconds to make it, then the problem just becomes getting people to watch it. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, the I've like these four pillars of this podcast. And it was sort of, some of its production, uh, prototyping, uh, manufacture, or sorry, it's, uh, sorry, it's, it's prototyping, funding, manufacture, and distribution. And manufacture is no longer, I mean, you know, we can make, uh, things for a lot of digital media, you can have a CD. I was back to uh, Julian Villard. some musician I backed. I got an actual CD because I wanted a CD and it was sort of an extra, I wanted to give him more support. And so I got this thing with the handwritten note on the case and it's great. It's a real thing. And I know I can buy physical media of movies if I want, but we've transcended that 
for a lot of people who don't want that, they just want to own the media or the ability to download the media again, which we can talk about as part of uh, distribution. Um, mm-hmm. But so, so YouTube and Vimeo and some other sites, you know, declining order of, of use, uh, they're out there and they grew and they made it easy. And they've now, you know, it's easier. It was that five minute thing you talked about. And then some of the limits have been lifted. So you can actually, you can make long things and post them. But um, Jack Conti at XOXO uh, this last year, the 2013 one, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to his video. So Jack Conti and Natalie Dawn are Pomplamoose, and they're like one of the most popular, you know, YouTube sensations. That's how they got started, and then so forth. But he went through the math of YouTube, and it's and it's horrifying. And uh, you could have a million views on a video and make like twenty five bucks. And um, I had this thing that came up the other day. I, w- I work on a this is a slightly obscure, but it showed to me the YouTube math directly. Is uh, I do um, some technical books, and we were revising a book about Apple's Wi Fi products and how to configure them. And I put a video up two years ago of a walkthrough of the new software they released for configuration. I did it in a few minutes. I posted, you know, edited it, posted it, put a voiceover, you know, maybe spent an hour overall on the thing and posted it and sort of forgot about it. It was a little bit of a promo for the book. Well, I was talking to my editor and I look it up and um, it's had 112,000 views, which is modest. How nice. Well, but it's great. It's made 800 bucks. And I was thinking, uh-huh. and it's crazy. That's like, for me, that's like selling, you know, uh, uh, 100 copies, 200 copies of the book, mm-hmm. which is great. But this is a technical area. So most of the ads that YouTube puts up are high dollar value ads. But even with that, 100,000 views and 800 bucks, it's not, I'm, I'm not crying about it. It was over a couple of years. It's, it's money I didn't actually know was in my pocket because it just gets routed through direct deposit. Mm-hmm. But you get up a scale and you say, okay, well, but a million views of something that's popular, that's like culture could earn you $25, you know, using advertising on YouTube is not a way to make a living. So everyone who's had popular video or music videos, particularly, it feels like they've had to find another way to actually make their living. That's a way to build an audience who knows about them. It's not a way to make any money. That's right. And we talk a lot about that, how YouTube is, is seems very, very focused just on the ad supported model. And, uh, you know, they, they do have a transactional product where you can mm-hmm. buy th- things and they have a subscription service where you can subscribe and pay. But uh, they don't seem very invested in it. It doesn't seem to be very popular among either users or among creators. And that was part of the opportunity that Casey and I saw a few years ago and sort of, you know, Louis, the release of Louis C.K.'s special when he self-distributed his special yeah. on his own website. That was a real light bulb moment for us because we built the technology to do uh, everything around that. We had a video player that we created. We had uh, kind of a site publishing uh, app that we developed. And we were like, oh, my God, the secret is charging money. <laughs> the, the, sec- the secret is is the paypal button you know and he went through the math of it at the time too and i think he was saying and it sounds right it's like he'd have to charge 20 or 25 bucks if he distributed the same thing through traditional means because of all and he and he wasn't even complaining about it per se he said this is just the cost of going out through that mechanism everybody needs to make money along the way mm-hmm. and maybe it's too much or not but he wasn't even complaining about that but he said if i just do this directly i don't have to engage all that the only problem is if people don't buy it as opposed to which is a, a very different way i mean a lot of people complain about say record albums or film studios in terms of how they cook their books or don't cook their books and you know mm-hmm. that's a whole subject but he wasn't even complaining about that he said look this is going to cost 20 or 25 bucks, why not make it five? And if you guys all come along, then I can just do this and we don't have to go through this exercise of having all the other people involved. Absolutely. It's just cutting, you know, cutting out middlemen who, who in many cases are actually very valuable. Like we mm-hmm. actually work all the time with distributors, with studios and networks uh, where there is in, in many, many cases, there's a lot of value to be added, but it's also, you know, 
is a system that's already very well established and there's a lot of rules in place and there's a lot, there's a specific way of doing things where, uh, even for a guy like Louie, you know, he had his TV, he had a network TV show. So he had a lot of visibility. He was in a perfect position to kind of do it on his own. He, you know, he probably like designed his own poster art, right? Like, and there's a lot of resources you can tap into by, you know, assigning to a record label, so to speak. But if you don't need them or you think you can do, you can do it on your own, uh, or you, you know you have friends you can rope into it or people you can rope into it it's it's like on the internet nobody knows that it's you know i'm using a 60 dollar microphone right uh and the internet nobody knows you're a dog I and mean, it, it's it's really hard to tell kind of like a pro level production from like a not pro level production now so he, when you break down that barrier it makes absolute perfect sense to be kind of having a multifaceted approach where you could reach out to traditional media there is things to do there especially for a guy like louis uh but then, you, of course, you're going to have an internet presence. It, it seems like a no-brainer. Well, it's it's also that audience seems to be one of the differentiating characteristics. Uh, I always say when you go to Kickstarter, the problem is you can't – for most people, unless you have this crazy compelling thing that spreads like wildfire, it just becomes a meme or it becomes something. like this. And this was true in the early days of Kickstarter especially. There were things that were unique and uh, like the glyph. I've talked to the folks at Studio Neat a bunch of times. Yeah. Great guys. And the glyph went nuts because it filled a need people didn't know they had. And the minute they saw it, and then it got promoted a lot on tech sites and it got to exactly the right audience. So they did not have to do any – and they were smart. They marketed to the tech sites to get them interested, but they were able to pick up – tens of millions of people seeing it and then, you know, and then sell uh, on the order of thousands. And the math worked out really well. Louis C.K. had the direct access to people and his platform. People knew him. He's at a, a level of celebrity where you can pull in, again, tens of millions of people without much effort and then sell, I think, was tens of thousands of copies. It wasn't, it wasn't a million. Let's take a break so I can tell you about this week's Indie Advertisers. The truth is people don't understand the guidelines that surround moderate alcohol intake and use. Drink Control is an app that tracks and converts your alcohol intake quantities, such as glasses, bottles, or cans, into standard units of alcohol. This lets you know when you're going over the moderate drinking limits that are in your community or the ones you set for yourself, as well as tracking how much you've spent on drinks. That's a sobering thought. So go to drinkcontrolapp.com. That's drinkcontrolapp, one word, dot com, or search for Drink Control in the App Store. Use the computer you carry with you everywhere to help you monitor how much you're drinking so you can stay within the limits you set for yourself or those in your community. The GamerX convention is coming soon, and it's the gaming convention that's meant for everybody, but it particularly celebrates the diverse culture and history of gaming. It features guests like Zach Wiener of Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, Alex Ohanian, one of the founders of Reddit, and WWE's Darren Young, a wrestler who's really helped promote this event. It's got sponsors like Cards Against Humanity, IndieCade, 2K, and more. There's something for everyone at this event. It's intended to be inclusive, diverse, and safe. If you've been reluctant to go to a gaming convention before, this is the event for you. You'll be welcome. It runs July 11th to 13th in downtown San Francisco. You go to GamerX.com, that's G-A-Y-M-E-R-X.com, and use the code NEWDISRUPTORS to get $20 off your registration. If you want to know more about the convention, listen to episode 61 of the New Disruptors, in which I interview Matt Kahn about last year's event and this year's. Do you like pixel art? 
I've always loved it. It's got nostalgia for me, and I like the modern renditions of it. Pixel Wits creates handcrafted pixel art, and they're giving away one pixel portrait every day this week as part of this promotion. Enter to win one of seven free pixel art portraits of yourself, a loved one, a pet, even a complete stranger. Just follow Pixel Wits creator Jesse Lane on Twitter before July 4th at midnight to enter. That's at Jesse Lane, J-E-S-S-E-L-A-N-E, or go to newdisrupt.org and you can find the link to click to follow. Visit pixelwits.com slash giveaway for details. That's pixel, W-I-T-S, all one word, pixelwits.com slash giveaway, and get more information on how you could earn free bonus entries in this giveaway. Scolding the Winds is an ebook novella about losing your family to their religion and finding some sort of happiness when you're completely alone. It deals with loss, addiction, and ultimately, hope. It's being crowdfunded on Inkshares, and Joel Kelly is the person behind it. If you'd like to get more information and help support this independent writing project, go to his site, joelkelly.ca. That's Joel and then Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y all one word, or visit newdisrupt.org for a direct link. This is a book he's wanted to write for a long time, and this is something you can help create. Take a look at his site, see if you're interested, and help back his efforts to publish this book. And now, back to the podcast. So last week's episode with Adam Cornelius and Chris Higgins, which will have aired by the time, just, just after we record this, uh, we talked about their movie Coin that's going through a Kickstarter phase. They have an audience that they measure in the the direct reaches in probably the tens of thousands and their indirect reaches easily in the hundreds of thousands. Mm-hmm. And so they're only looking to get about 1,000 people, maybe 1,200, 1,500 on board. It's a modest number out of the audience they have. And then at the other extreme, you have a Veronica Mars network television show, extremely popular, canceled before its time. People had all this nostalgia for it and they came onto Kickstarter and they tapped directly in and boom. And again, it wasn't a million people. It was tens of thousands of people, but the the direct connection seems to make it all worthwhile. And I, I wonder what you think about, about that scalability of audience of, of what, who you can reach and how that relates directly to funding and the scale of ambition. I think uh, we hit the nail on the head that it is there is a scale, right? Like we, I get the question all the time about, oh, how do I do this if I'm not Aziz Ansari or I'm not, you know, a Louis C.K. Like I'm not right. famous, and I, I have just like a rolodex of people for them to call now. Where, uh, it, you know, Lisanne Peugeot, who you, who you interviewed, talked to uh, the creator uh, of uh, co-creator of uh, indie game, uh, the movie. She's working for you now, which is great. Uh, she is, yeah. She's a filmmaker ambassador, yeah, uh, which is a, a fun title. Um, and 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 really, I mean, they are this perfect counterexample to that. And they were uh, Aziz Ansari was our first release, uh, his comedy special two years ago, and then. Uh, Indie Game, the movie, was our second release, and they were both smash hits. And one was a guy who had a network TV show and a million Twitter followers, and the other were two first-time filmmakers who from Canada, from the middle of nowhere Canada, who had uh, you know a whopping ten thousand Twitter followers, and uh, and they and they both did phenomenally well. And I think that it it speaks to the idea that it is more about uh, the process and sort of your expectation and. Uh, the scale of the film, like with, with Indie Game, they were, you know, very frugal, very deliberate about the whole process. They were very engaged. But I think the one common component with both of those releases and with, with almost all of the really successful releases that we've seen are a lot of personality, a lot of engagement, um, like like a lot of honesty, I think. And I think that's the thing that the Internet responds so well to is authenticity. And you see that on YouTube, too. You see that pretty much 
with everybody who you see being successful. Uh, and I think it's something that we've seen with music. It's even something that you've seen with video games. And it's just now kind of coming more into the film and TV world. And it's something that we want to be a big part of, uh, which is just that direct connection with the creator and kind of knowing who made this. And it's always killed me that I couldn't just uh, subscribe to Darren Aronofsky's films. You yeah. Know, where I just want to like... How do I start? Like, I need to start the Darren Aronofsky fan club where you pay $10 a month or $5 a month or whatever. And we have like a newsletter that we send out and uh, discussion groups. So you can talk going for we have discussion groups. Right. So we can just be like, we can dissect pie, right? right? Like 15 years later, we're like still dissecting pie and, you know, just get all his movies. And, and, and every time I look at IMDb, I just cringe and die a little bit inside because it's such a bad website. And yet it's the number one title and the number one response for uh, number one search result for pretty much every movie and TV show and every actor. It's just a, it's just a dictionary basically. I mean, it's a, or a bibliography. It's useful. It's even, yeah. I mean, but, it, it's absolutely useful. Don't get me wrong, yeah, but, but I, it's I think not right. It's not a, it's not an experience. It's just, it's not an experience at all. Yeah. And that was actually uh, how we started. Know your meme was, was born out of sort of that same frustration in a lot of ways was, uh, I would Google an internet meme because like you, I frequently have no clue what is going on. And, um, I would, I would, if I was lucky, I would get a really bad Wikipedia page. And so, uh, I started writing and ent- Wikipedia entries for a lot of the sort of, you know, that, that magic middle internet memes and also like the long tail of internet memes. <laughs> and, um, my articles would just get rejected and deleted. And I oh. like, there was no way for me to explain, be like, no, 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 this is very popular among a very, very small group of people. I had that happen recently is I saw someone post this thing about, it was a, I, I was a Jeopardy, uh, I'm a Jeopardy champion. I've won, won twice on Jeopardy. Oh my God. And uh, it's my only claim to fame. I'm going to milk it for all it's worth. And uh, we, someone was posting around me, they forwarded to me this thing. It showed someone had written, who is Danky Kang on their Jeopardy screen. Mm. I'm like, is this real? And I dig around and the question was allegedly, uh, it was like a final Jeopardy, you know, who is, it was, uh, this, this video game character, um, is blue and grabs rings. And the person had apparently, and it shows, looks like they'd written, who is Danky Kang? I'm like, this cannot be real. And of course, I'm pretty sure it was Know Your Meme. I'm pretty sure it was the site. I found the answer and it was created, but it's just Danky Kang. I just, that's like my go-to now. That's like, I, um, that's my meme that I use on Twitter, unfortunately, often now when people, Get in there. Who is Danky Kang? But it was great to go somewhere because it was such an obscure thing. I'm sure it was somebody's idea of a little joke, but it perpetuates and not having an answer is is hard. But yeah, yeah, and that well, you're making that long tail into that magic middle and blowing it up <laughs> into becoming the fat head. You know? Oh my God, I, we all we all should have fat heads. Well, you know, the Kickstarter thing and the and the audience connection, the engagement. This was the problem on the output side of Kickstarter, and I thought the timing was hilarious and interesting um, about uh, indie game is that they were ready to come out and they were sorting out. I mean, I'll refer in the show notes to uh, my two interviews with uh, with uh, Jamie and Lazan, but they were at this weird inflection point. They were at the point when movie theaters were just switching, like the like I think the was the mandate wasn't there yet, but it was right at the point where many movie theaters, but not all, had digital capability, and thirty five millimeter and other film was on its way out. It was almost at the end, but not quite. And mm-hmm. they were at a point where there were mechanisms for distribution, like the bandwidth was affordable, but they would have had to buy into models that locked them into specific things and gave them less freedom. And then you guys started. I mean, so there was this seemingly fantastic point where they hit the mark between we did something successful on Kickstarter. We're making a bunch of DVDs that we're sending out. Now, what is our next thing? And holy cow, being able to leverage that into like the most successful independent film of its kind. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing thing to see. I mean, when I talk about the origins of VHX, I need to triple underline how much of a happy accident it was that we happened to kind of be in the right place at the right time, interested in the same space with the right background to work with people like Lisanne and James who uh, were perfectly positioned to kind of do something on their own. The same with Aziz, same with Louis, same with so many of the filmmakers that we worked with now where we wouldn't be able to do this on our own. Like we wouldn't be able to convince people that, you know, it should be a worldwide release and you should do something like DRM free or, you know, you don't need to do a theatrical, traditional, traditional theatrical tour. Like they came up with all of that on their own. They just, the one, the one problem we solved was we don't know how to sell it on the web and have like a great <laughs> experience with yeah. that. And we're like, great, we'll just do that one thing. <laughs> Yeah, because they almost went the traditional route. They looked at dist- – distributors were interested, but they realized if they went into distribution, they could not easily fulfill their backers outside of specific markets and specifically the United States originally. They would have had a delay getting DVDs to people who would back them sometimes twice. I know. Uh, and it supported yeah. them all along. And I know that was one of their considerations. The, the DRM free thing I – mean, we'll talk about There's so many details to talk about here, but that's another – fascinating choice is you do not put on any kind of encrypted protection and you also require, I don't know if it's require is the right word, but all the films that you host have to be available for streaming and download. You don't restrict to a specific mechanism of availability at this point. Those are two really interesting choices and they're very internet-y choices, right? That it's like, it's a very boing-boing Cory Doctorow world you're living in. And, uh, and so <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, it's so distinct from everything else. How did you, was it just this is just what it's got to be. I mean, was there never like a discussion? Should we do this? Should we not? Should we make an option? Or is it just, no, we're not going to start this thing without this kind of philosophy? Yeah. I mean, there really wasn't even a conversation around it It, it, because it wasn't ideological or philosophical necessarily. It was practical. It was, uh, you know, we're selling on the web and how do we get this onto people's Xboxes and Playstations and iPads mm. and all these other places? And it goes, oh yeah, the same way that you do it from the Pirate Bay. You know, it's an MP4 <laughs> file. You can just do what you want. So and really, awesome. no, so much of our so original, awesome. so much of our original motivation was we need to make paying for it easier and better than stealing it, because the status quo right now is that it's worse. It's more, it's, it's, it's expensive. Like the digital copy costs as much as the physical copy, which uh, as someone who understands the basic cost behind this is just appalling. And it, it only work, you know, they limit the amount that you can use it, which, and they, they don't want you to share it. And it, all the restrictions, all the caveats associated with it, like it makes me want to go buy Blu-rays, except that I don't have a Blu-ray player. You know, I don't even have a DVD player anymore. And so I've reverted, you know, I wound up buying a cheap, really good uh, Sony. Well, it's okay. I like my Philips DVD player is awesome because it's Philips and it's unlocked and whatever. I have a Sony Blu-ray that was relatively affordable and I broke down because Blu-rays are so cheap now that I can buy a Blu-ray for practically because they go on sale all the time. I bought Mel Brooks's entire oeuvre for like $19 on Blu-ray or something like that. That's amazing. Because they're selling, you know, it's it's a broken market. So Blu-rays, if you catch it at the right time, are cheaper than digital downloads, especially in bundles of films, because of exactly the market that you guys are building. Yeah, and the thing is, it's like you could take those Blu-rays and then rip them to your computer, and now you have, uh, you know, what people would call like a DRM-free digital copy of the thing. But it's not like it's like that's not what you have. You just have a copy of it on your computer. You know, like you have a, of a thing that you bought and paid for, and you're a customer, and now you're a happy customer. And so for us, it, it just started with the user experience where, 
uh, as consumers. This was sort of the quality of experience that we were used to, the flexibility of experience that we were used to. And yes, it sort of limited the options that we can make available through our platform. Um, but it's something where we're moving in the direction of trying to, to expand the availability of things like that. Like, like we don't have any rentals right now, but it's something that we talk about a lot because we would like to be able to have like a lower priced option. And the problem is that we don't want to just emulate the models that are already there just, just because those models themselves are actually just emulating physical models. And it's this like terrible repetition of of the of the status quo that uh, nobody's thinking about what was good about some parts of it what was bad about some parts of it and that's so we're trying to bring like a level of innovation and thinking about like what what does that mean to you know to to own something digital you know what does that what does that mean to to rent something uh how can you rent a digital file technically speaking it's impossible but you have the the trust factor that you've built with an audience because you don't use DRM. I was thinking about – I just read uh, Kickstarter is now doing these long-form features about people not connected with them, but I think that fit into their mold or have used them in the past. So they ran this great piece about uh, your friend and mine, Max Temkin, who's uh, one of the lead folks behind Cards Against Humanity. And um, I saw this at XOXO. You probably did as well. And they just did it at um, – at, uh, was it E3 or something like that? They ha- They put out – a pile of stuff for sale and they put an iPad with square register there and an sign that says, just leave money. And Love it. People wow. do. And he, every once in a while he goes and he throws all the piles of cash into a bag and it's like, well, people steal it, uh, whatever. And there's sort of this, but it's the fact trust is so weird. Now people are sociopaths and someone could just come along and like they steal tip jars and do it. But I think there's enough of a peer pressure and the way it works. And I was thinking, you're in the same boat that like you could almost not like you just say download any film you want. People need to make a purchase and go through it and have an account. But that people would respect you and the filmmakers so much because you're treating them. You could send people an email that said your rental period's over. Please delete the movie now. And yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's all you'd have to do. I mean, that's one potential model, right? I, I, I and that's exactly what the way we're thinking about it, right? Is 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 a clean room design that's that's internet native. That's something that is more like what we would expect. Like you know, pay what you want. Like that is uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful model because uh, it actually it, it both trusts the consumer, right? But it also actually plays to our uh, inner cognitive biases, right? Where it, it, you have trouble assigning value to it. So you kind of err towards more than less. And, and that kind of behavior of, of like trusting the customer, kind of putting the fans first. Um, actually, one thing that uh, James and Lissan from Indie Game the Movie would say all the time is this think like a fan mantra, which we've really tried to take to heart as a company where we look at uh, something that's going to happen or a request that comes in or uh, kind of new things we're working on and it's like, oh, does this make the experience better for fans? Uh, and if it doesn't, we just don't do it. And we know that we're in a world where anybody can get any media they want for free whenever they want if they make some amount of effort. So people are paying, I don't want to say voluntarily, they're paying as a matter of convenience and support. And especially when you support them in the way that you do, that you've chosen a model that um, I mean, if you buy into an ecosystem, so I'll bring up um, Stripped. I want to bring up Stripped and Veronica Mars distribution because uh, oh, sure. I, the guys at Stripped, I interviewed them, and there's a um, boy. Can we unpack some of the stuff that you talked about in the blog? We post have so many friends in common. Yeah. Oh man, but so the guys at Stripped, wonderful fellas, and they um, they wanted to make a splash. So their goal all along, and they didn't hide it, was they were going to distribute through VHX. That was really that's how they did their Kickstarter rewards was through you guys, and they did sales through it. But they wanted to get the publicity benefit of becoming a highly ranked documentary on iTunes. 
Mm-hmm. And they were very open, like we're going to sell on iTunes on day one, and then on day two we'll add, I think it was VHX, and day three Google Play or some order like that. But their their thing was, and I kind of messaged this a bit when I was writing about them because uh, it was a lot of people have bought into the Apple ecosystem, and if you're part of the ecosystem, which which I am, I don't own an Xbox, I'm not really a gamer, I don't have portable devices that aren't Apple. I'm kind of, you know, unfortunately at some level, like I just bought into everything Apple, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got an Apple TV, and I you know I don't even have a Roku, so. For me, I don't actually experience the pain of DRM most of the time with Apple's Fair Play protection. I'm I'm rarely in a situation where I can't access something I bought through the iTunes system mm-hmm. uh, with any restriction. And and I, there are a lot of people like that who have bought in all in Apple. But then there's a ton of people who are in all kinds of systems or because they're in an ecosystem – a platform that doesn't have as many options, and Google, you know, and Andrew, or Google, and Android, and so forth. There's a lot of stuff there, but it's not as big or consistent as Apple's. Uh, where you're a Microsoft customer, those people are, you know, are in that position. So I thought Stripped did that interesting thing where, where uh, Fred and Dave said, uh, "We want our splash, so we're going to sell there." If you are part of that world. Buy on iTunes because that's what we want you to buy. Please do it there. If you're not part of the world, you can get it from VHX, and that's totally cool too. And that was an interesting approach, I thought. And it also revealed that a lack of exclusivity on these different platforms, including yours, can be a sales advantage. And that's the trend that we've seen actually is one where uh, we are augmenting people's sales on iTunes. We are not replacing their sales on iTunes. You know, It's exactly like you're saying where it is uh, a different customer base where there is – absolutely a group of people who browse iTunes in order to find something to watch. And there's a group of people who probably do the same on Amazon and presumably the same on, you know, Xbox stores on these different ecosystems they might buy into. But then there is a large contingent of people who are finding out about it through uh, Google search, who are finding out about through social media. And the official film website is very often the first result. And so that's why we've always considered that to be sort of prime real estate for selling it and sort of taking advantage of all the things that the web has to offer. And in the case of Stripped, they literally took advantage of every feature of our platform that could <laughs> allows them to do something new and innovative. You know, they had, like on iTunes, either it's 22-minute episodes or it's a 90-minute feature. And that's kind of like the two, the two checkboxes. You know, it's, like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a toggle. Whereas with us, we're like, yeah, you know, you have a million hours of content. We can do that. You have one minute. You know, I, I don't think we even have a minimum. You could probably sell a video that was one second long or six seconds long, sell your vines. Um, I want to circle back to the upsell for them because I think that would you do this great blog post or there's a, a blog post by your company. I, I want to break into the, this for just one second, talk about Veronica Mars and then come come back to this because um, Veronica Mars, like, so Stripped and Veronica Mars both funded on Kickstarter and, and Fred and Dave had other money that came in, but they were, you know, a big hunk of money from two very successful Kickstarters. It took them a long time. Veronica Mars, famously, the film raised millions of dollars and got an enormous amount of publicity and then went into, you know, a limited theatrical release they so stripped went with v, with you know iTunes sales and VHX DRM free and uh, then the rest of the platforms they're involved with Veronica Mars distribution to backers was through the ultraviolet system mm-hmm. and i thought like it was the best example of a cautionary tale and a set of unaligned expectations even though everyone went into it with what it feels like the best intent there was no absolutely i mean it wasn't like the filmmakers like rob or anybody's like oh we want to make sure people have a bad experience but because they part Partnered with Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers has invested in the Ultraviolet platform, and which I, should, I mean, I'll put a link in. But so Ultraviolet, it's a DRM system that allows portability, which is kind of cool. It's actually of yeah. DRM systems, the concepts behind it are the best concepts ever developed for DRM. Totally. 
And it's terrible. Some people are talking about how they had a you know you have to create an ultraviolet account, then you have to try to create an account at Warner Brothers, I think. Then you had to create and log in on your if you weren't doing it on a computer on your you know DVD player or your Blu-ray or whatever, and create an account there, and then all the stars had to align so that you could make it happen. And when it happened, it was great and it worked as expected. But for a ton of people, like oh my god, I don't you know, a didn't even want to opt into this infrastructure. They didn't want to give any mm-hmm. of their information. And B, when it didn't work, what was the repercussion? I, I, did you learn lessons from that? Did it, or was it just, was it precisely what you expected would happen? Yeah, it really is. And it's why we, a big part of why we offer uh, free fulfillment for Kickstarter projects is that sort of that DRM-free interoperability makes it a no-brainer for anybody because they can just take it with them anywhere they want. And uh, with Veronica Mars, I'm actually a backer. Uh, I'm a big fan of both the show and the mm-hmm. movie. I know people who worked on the film. Uh, worked on the crowdfunding campaign and really amazing people. It's an amazing project and it just kills me how the redemption happened because this was, this was literally the segment of their customers that are the single most important segment. You know, these were the people who financed the project before it even existed. They're clearly the people who are the most passionate about it. And it's like you're saying they had a lot of, you know, they had someone they had to answer to and they had an agenda and they couldn't have used something like VHX if they wanted to. And uh, it's a real shame because it resulted in sort of like a less than ideal consumer experience. And even for me personally, like I'm pretty good with technology. I already had a Flickster account. I already had an Ultraviolet account too. Like it should have been really easy for me, except that it didn't work on my phone. Right. And I was like, okay, great. I'll, uh, I'll just do this when I get home. And then I forgot. And then it's just like this, this, this process of, of, I mean, we live in a world now where of, of instant gratification and the, like every click you add, you know, I'm sure you're cutting your conversion rate in half. And so there was, there were unfortunately like a lot of barriers to fans getting the thing that they wanted that they've been waiting for for so long. Yeah. And when you put that in the way, it's just, it's, now there's a bad taste in the mouth of people who really were huge Huge baggage. And I should point out, as you know, they, they did go like almost immediately. Nobody said, immediately. Oh, we're not, you know, I know. They were like, they're like, look, we'll refund you the money. Go buy it on iTunes when it was, and we'll send you 10 bucks, which they did. And it after, yeah, the second wave was like, you got in touch with them and anything you needed, they would do, which was the right way to do it. But it caught, co- you know, at some level, it costs the money. They had to gear up customer service. They had to give credits. They got some of it, you know, if they give $10 for iTunes, they got $7 of it back on the back end. But it's still, you know, it, it just became this thing where you're like, oh, man. So, but it was this weird point in time to say, this is the most successful film Kickstarter, some really sophisticated people involved, and they had to make a technology choice. And, now we know what the problem is with that. And will the next movie, are they going to make the same, you know, that's of that scale? Will they do that? Because they've seen what happens and they've seen how that suppresses and you know, probably suppresses sales in the back end through conventional means because all people are reading about at the release was it's a pain to get this movie. I know. It was really painful to watch. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I can't. We, we have conversations going on, but I, I don't think that's going to happen again. People are being smarter about how to do the redemption and something where we've even spent an enormous amount of time trying to optimize our workflow for users so that it is literally just one click works anywhere and you're just watching it right away. And oh, I love it. I actually started watching a screener by accident and I expired my code because it was so easy and I had to get another screener. I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. So I got a thing. I got a thing that we're actually working on now where you can request an extension and oh, thank uh, you. I'll probably, I mean, I've been voting to just make it automatic. <laughs> So it's request an extension. It's just like, sure, here you go. 
But I should talk about the ecosystem there. Or the I guess the workflow maybe is that um, and as as you know, we never try to turn this into a marketing thing for a company. But this is you've got a tool, you've got a platform, and it's the platform people are using for this particular area. So I don't I don't feel bad talking through it. But you're not just a streaming download service. You've got a um, there's so many different pieces now, and I think this list keeps getting longer of of what you offer a filmmaker. So yes, you do the, the video distribution and streaming and so forth. Um, but even screeners like that's uh, so stripped. I got a screener of, sorry, I'm using, I'm using the film terminology. Like I know what I'm talking about, but I got yeah, a, you right. know, a, a copy of the film I could see ahead of time. This is a huge thing in, uh, in review and, you know, Academy Awards and so forth that people get copies of movies to watch either to write about later or because they're in the industry or because they're voting on something. That's one service you offer too, is that you can distribute these, um, you can distribute the screeners directly to to press. Yeah, it's something that I actually have been trying to uh, we've been trying to figure out how to get that in front of more people's eyeballs because it's probably our single most popular feature outside of uh, you know actual like selling and watching of movies. And it, it was born out of you know we've we've worked with hundreds uh, now thousands of of filmmakers both big and small and this was a, it's a standard part of their process is to be sending these things out but. They're re-uploading it to Vimeo and assigning different passwords for everything and rotating the passwords all the time and, uh, you know, burning watermarks in manually and all these things where we were like, this sounds like a software problem, you know? Like, I, I love having those conversations because <laughs> I, I hear I hear the pain and I just go, this is, this is one of those things where it's like, you need to stop using Excel and set up a database kind of thing, you know, where it's like, this is, this is why we program things is, is because we can scale this and solve this problem. And, uh, yeah, the screeners feature has been really popular. It works super well. I'm actually really excited. We've been working, we're working on VHX apps for different devices. And, and, and part of the reason for that is so that you, uh, you know, for instance, on your Apple TV could watch those screeners easily too. And so you'd have purchases alongside screeners, alongside all the other things that maybe things you've gotten for free or who knows. It's, and, uh, I think there's a a very, uh, modern internet-y thing that you do too, is that you make sure the data involved around sales and so forth belongs to the filmmaker and that they can embed. I know this is relatively, uh, it's more recent, right? Is that uh, uh, the sales can be embedded onto a filmmaker site. They don't have to go to someplace else. That's a newish feature. Yeah, it's relatively new. Actually the, the most exciting part about this, and this is another one of those things I'm trying to get in front of more eyeballs is it can be on the filmmaker's website. It could also be on anybody else's website. You know, you can embed uh, it's, there's a, we have like a trailer where you, it has like a buy now call out, call to action, but then you can also just kind of wire it up so that all the buy now buttons, it sort of does like an in-page seamless transaction. Mm-hmm. And my, my real goal with that is, is, um, you know, when you're blogging about stripped that the purchase buttons on the page, it's, we're minimizing the number of clicks and trying to make it as easy as possible. And then there's the you, know, you have APIs and you have integration, which is a very you know it's e-commercey thing. But you don't think about that. A lot of media stuff stands alone, and there might be you know an affiliate program, or there might be a way to request a bit of data or embed an iframe, you know, HTML gunk or JavaScript on someone's site. But but you have an actual even API so that people can integrate uh, into their own sites, and then you also integrate with third-party e-commerce providers too, so that when you have these hybrids, someone's got a digital product and a physical product, they can still work with you to sell the digital one and fulfill that and work with somebody else, but not have it be two separate transactions or two separate things that they have to cope with. Uh, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, we're not a physical merch company, but we, that is like a very popular offering and something that we wanted to be able to do that combo, you know, buy the vinyl and get a copy of the, get, get the MP3s kind of offering where you can buy a t-shirt or buy a poster and you still get a copy of the movie. You don't have to do tr- two transactions. 
Well, and uh, this is actually the, the one of the other things uh, which ties us back into strip. Where I want to talk a little more there is that uh, uh, you have all these extras that you're. This is the thing that was missing, of course, when digital downloads, digital uh, media downloads first happened. Is um, subtitle support was weak or non-existent? Uh, mm-hmm. Special features, alternate audio tracks, um, behind the scenes, like like it was. You know, you could get the movie and then nothing else. You're like, well, if I buy the movie online, and as you're saying, the prices were the same too, or they're whatever. So I buy the movie online, I get a lower quality thing. It's not. It wasn't. You know, they weren't doing 1080p initially, so I'm getting a lower quality download for 15 bucks. But if I buy the DVD in the store for 16.99, I get it's higher quality. You know, or the Blu-ray, whatever. It's higher quality, and I get the packaging, and I get this, and I have two hours of other stuff, and there's a game on it. It feels like you're trying to bring back some of what the physical media experience is without the limitations of physical media. Absolutely. It, it really seems so uh, painful that that the physical goods are still better than the digital goods when it comes to <laughs> movies and TV. And, you know, not just that, not just the things you mentioned about the physical good, but you mm. can also, you can give that Blu-ray to somebody else, you know, right. and you can share that with other people. Whereas most digital systems... Uh, they spend an enormous amount of time, like all, the, all this talk about DRM, like they spend an enormous amount of time and energy and money uh, trying to prevent sharing, which seems so crazy. And then on the API front too, even uh, like, you know, each of these systems trying to protect their own ecosystem so strongly uh, to the extent where like Netflix is shutting down their API. Yes. And we see all these trends happening and, and, and like another one of our, you know, our mantras is the idea of closing the gap between interest and availability, which has to do with kind of the worldwide availability too. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, like you might be able to buy the Blu-ray for your region. Like let's say you're Canadian, you might be able to get the Blu-ray, but you can't get a digital copy. That seems crazy. And uh, e- even the idea of like, uh, you know, things not being available worldwide is, is so crazy because it's like, it turns out there's no borders on the internet, you know? And, uh, like when people hear buzz around something, uh, I think, I think even for Lisanne and James, this was like a, like that being Canadian was a big reason why they were, they wanted to to distribute independently. And, you know, I don't know if their North American release included Canada, like maybe the movie would not have been available (laughs) to their parents. It happens all the time too. It happens all the time. There's this model of, uh, there's cartels and scarcity models and arbitrage models, right? Is that you want to, the, you know, the region one encoding uh, is locked because maybe it's a, you know, a 20 euro item in the EU and it's a, $15 $15 item in the US and they don't want people to buy it and uh, you know and arbitrage the price and sell it so you use cartel like control to restrict you know to create artificial scarcity or or borders that don't exist and um yeah. you know I've I've thought for a long time that the DVD at region encoding and Blu-ray D- region encoding is actually an illegal cartel practice but I'm not an antitrust lawyer mm, and uh, but it, it seems like well it seems like it because you have a you have a um Bunch of companies that have that have essentially, uh, you know, I must say colluded because that's a legal term. But they have worked <laughs> well. They've worked together to produ- to agree on things that limit consumer access. And usually, in almost every market, like when Apple did that with book publishers, that was collusion. Even though the book publishers, because they were trying to set higher prices or or create different business models, mm-hmm. so the judge, you know, judge found that Apple was in violation of uh, price was a price fixer. But when Movie studios do it for physical media. Apparently, it's fine, and I'm not. I'm not quite sure I understand that. But you, but that's part yeah. of it is they need to enforce uh, the idea that these things are are scarce. But once you get to fully digital releases, it doesn't you know? There's no media involved, and anything they do is is an overlay that is clearly absurd. Like much more so even than the actual physical disc. 
Yeah. Well, you'd be really impressed too how much of those rules have translated to the digital world too. Uh, where uh, it's, it's in a lot of ways, it's even actually even more restrictive and that ends up, um, I think it's a real shame because it's, uh, I think the peop- most of the people who end up pirating stuff are, are not people, are not freeloaders who are, are looking to get it for free. I think that there is a percentage of, of people who, who, just, who just won't pay for no, things. I'll, I'll out myself. I downloaded, there was a season of Doctor Who that I downloaded when it came out in UK. I torrented it and then I paid for it once I could in the US. I actually, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and I was like, I wanted to pay for it, and when I had the opportunity to, I did. I went legit, but I didn't want to wait and wade through all the restrictions and inavailability. I think that's it. Yeah, the people, the people who are are in that first window, you know, are the super fans. They're your most valuable group of customers, and uh, you know, you're you're. It, it's it's naive to pretend we're in a world where you can region encode the DVD and then nobody will be able to get it. That's you know? right. And Apple, you know, Apple broke that. I shouldn't say Apple. The, the music labels did an amazing thing as they actually broke through that mindset problem because they were so afraid of Apple owning the industry and setting prices in the mm. early iTunes days. So the, the music industry took that huge leap and went DRM-free because it was a business advantage for them and it let them break Apple's hegemony. And it did. It worked. I mean, it, Apple's still a big player, but it's not the same kind of thing. And I've been waiting for that to happen with movie studios, but they control too many pieces of the transactions. Uh, and with uh, and there's not a dominant player, I think, in the same way. And Blu-rays, you know, sales are not as big as they'd hope, but they're still the physical media still remains something, and they've got the movie theaters to keep happy as well. But I'm waiting for it to happen in books as well, because DRM yep. is actually suppresses the publisher or movie studio's ability to maximize their sales, um, and and they see it as a tool, and it's a weapon against them. And the music industry was forced to you know lay down their arms, and the others have not yet been. But I I hope it's coming. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting. Uh the interoperability question, right? And what that does for innovation and where you focus the innovation. Um, I think that it's a, it's something that's inevitable in the same way that it was with music. And I think the same probably applies with books too, just because it does allow you to break up those cartels. And what's so strange, what's so strange about it though, is that it's actually the studios who are really imposing the restrictions on the, the retailers like Apple and Amazon. Like I bet I, my, my gut says that if the studios lifted their obligations around DRM and things like that, that Apple would probably do away with it. Even Amazon would do away with it because they, they just don't care. It just gets in the way. It's just like a technology cost for them. Like, yes, it promotes uh, vendor lock-in, but that's not how they want to achieve vendor lock-in. They want to achieve vendor lock-in through superior product. And Apple is absolutely mm-hmm. doing that. It assigns know? power to your distribution channel. Amazon, the only reason that Amazon has a lock now in this whole Achette thing, uh, the book thing, or their dispute now with Warner Home Video and the Lego movie, as we as we record this, Amazon suppressed the pre-order button on the Lego movie mm-hmm. because they are negotiating prices. Now, now who knows who's right? Warner Brothers may be asking for ridiculous things or not being reasonable. There's no way to know. But the fact is, in this situation, it's non-transparent to us as consumers. And the process seems like Amazon's being a bully, even though it's dealing with a multi-billion dollar business, yeah. um, because it's using its position to as a gatekeeper. Once you take DRM off, the movie studios are no longer beholden to worry about where people buy stuff anymore. And it frees them 
of this distribution channel, but they don't, I don't feel like they don't get that part yet because they're so used to control distribution, but it's being taken out of their hands or has been taken out of their hands. They should cast off their DRM shackles for yeah. their own advantage. They don't, they don't yeah, yeah. And it's so much more to the DRM is just such like a small piece of it too. I mean, really the, the worldwide releasing part of it, I also think is really critical and has almost nothing to do with the DRM conversation. Mm-hmm. That's all oh, right. Cause that's just encoding. It's not necessarily, it's a, it's a, it's a breakup a licensing issue, right, as opposed to necessarily yeah, a totally. And it's, issue. And it's just like, it's an IP address. It's just like, this looks like a, <laughs> it looks like you have the wrong IP address. Sorry. And, and it, it really, it really does seem strange that to hear, like when I go to, you know, these television academy events to hear everybody in the industry railing against piracy and how much it's destroying the industry. And then meanwhile, uh, you know, con- continuing with business practices that frankly encourage piracy that, that seem to invite it you know, but only like HBO is admitting that that's good for their business. You know? <laughs> and, and that's because they have a different business model. You know, they operate yeah. on a subscription business model. And so, but then maybe that, like, that's where we should direct the conversation, right? It's sort of like, oh man, if that's eating your lunch, as far as this transactional business model goes, like, why aren't we talking more about driving subscriptions, yeah. things like that? Like, how do you create a great brand, something like HBO? But, um, they're kind of, again, you know, it's like if you're sitting on a big pile of cash from, and you've got like a goose that's laying golden eggs, like you're not going to kill the goose and go get a duck or whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's hard to walk away. This gets into that disruptive thing. It's like, can you change yourself fast enough to buy into it? And ultraviolet, I think was, uh, was Warner brothers and some other investors attempt to uh, own some of the disruption by doing something that was seen as unconventional uh, and was well, you know, I know a number of uh, my friend uh, Christina Warren at uh, Mashable has been a big advocate of ultraviolet as a concept and a lot of tech people bought into it because the concept was good and the implementation is still awful. I think that, well, I actually consider ultraviolet to be the only VHX competitor. That, that <laughs> is what we're competing against. And it is an absolutely beautiful pitch, which is buy anywhere and watch anywhere. Yeah. And it is the, uh, I think it's fantastic. The concept is fantastic. And it's exactly like you're saying, like the, the actual execution is a nightmare. Probably one of the worst things I've ever seen. It's impossible. Uh, D- DRM can never actually uh, solve problems because it's always going to fail for some number of people or in the right circumstances, partly because right. of phone home requirements or account requirements. And so it's inevitable that some percentage of your audience all the time is going to be pissed off. Yeah, and then um, even on sort of the uh, like partner level, um, it's such a complicated piece of technology. It's actually uh, ultraviolet is like a container format for uh, five different DRM technologies. So in order to implement ultraviolet, you need to license and implement five different DRM technologies, which is just crazy. And so we think all the time about like like imagine if the Twitter API had had five different DRM techno- you know technologies. There'd be no Twitterific, there'd be no tweet deck, there'd be no like all the things that really made Twitter into what it is today. So that's that's even you know like when we talk about DRM free, we're not talking about a philosophy. We're talking about uh, a compatibility play. You know, we're talking about a practical uh, solution to a very complex problem, which is the home media ecosystem is very fragmented, and the third party developer ecosystem is very valuable and is an incredible huge potential way of, of helping grow your business and. Like uh, vendor lock is achieved through social network effects, not through technology limitations now. And uh, it, it's 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 kind of like you know, there's checkboxes on this on on the right hand side, and there's checkboxes on the left hand side. And uh, we want to be squarely on the right hand side. And when we look at 
all of the existing solutions, there's very few that we're interested in, in, in carrying over. And sometimes we even say just like whatever a traditional distributor is, we're just going to do exactly the opposite. The only thing you're locked into, I imagine, is the uh, is patent licenses, right? Is that there are uh, fees for streaming and downloading uh, the you know, the um, a, not AAC the uh, MP4 format, right? So you have to you've got uh, that as part of your overhead. Uh, we don't actually need to license that directly, although I uh, am going to put a huge asterisk next to that and look into <laughs> it after the call. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, it's an interesting thing because, I mean, that was one of the benefits of Flash for a while is that Adobe had the licensing. So if you embedded – if you used YouTube or you embedded Flash on your site, as a, you were sort of exempt from it in the sense that um, the fees were being paid in the right part of the system. But – and also when you make – and when you make files from different software, the software is licensed too. But yeah, there's a, it's that's a complicated thing. All right, well, I, be, I believe it's I believe it's during the encoding that you need to, and we uh, we actually use a third party, and there's you know there's free software out there that does the encoding. And I'd be curious actually because it's H two six four is kind of the underlying codec that would be the kind of the problematic yeah. codec. Hmm, I'm getting into the weeds here. All right, well, I won't get you into trouble, so we'll you know, let's get into it. Yeah, right. That's, well, it's, uh, an, it's an interesting problem. That's been, you know, it's gotten Firefox, and there's been this, a lot of issues with browsers, too, with playback. But yeah. um, deliver, it's like a delivery issue about how it's packaged. And Well, okay, so there are two other things I want to ask you about quickly, because um, as we get to the, as we round up to the end of this podcast, is so uh, let's get to the, the strip situation that I keep promising I'm going to talk about, because there's a blog post on your site I'll link to in the show notes that talks about stripped and the power of bonus content. And we don't have to go through every every point in it, but I think there are a couple of great lessons. Is um, We talked earlier in the show and, and on the uh, stripped podcast that I did that they had a whole bunch of extra content. They recorded, you know, 80 interviews and they have all this stuff and, they're, they, you know, they had to edit it down to a decent length film. But there's all these things that a fan of this medium would love, you know, an hour-long interview with Stephen Pastis or or Roz Chast or, or whatever. And um, so they were always planning to release these as, as features and um, – I thought it was fascinating that even though they had all of their sort of super fans in the Kickstarter and they were selling through things like iTunes, they still did extremely well from your site on these super – on the bonus packs and the super awesome deluxe $50 edition. 65 uh, now. Yeah. Oh, my – oh, because they added even more. Oh, my gosh. So um, can you talk me through just a little bit of this about th- – that? it seems like you guys were even surprised how well it did compared to um, maybe what you were expecting to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, again, this is like the reason I wake up in the morning is to be proven wrong about my gut instincts where somebody tells me there's like going to be a $65 package. I'm like, that sounds like a package that's not going to sell well, right? <laughs> but uh, it's exactly the opposite. It's really, you're like, I'm totally, uh, as as I, I must not be a, a newspaper comics fan, obviously, because uh, these interviews are kind of amazing. There's, you know, there's like 25 hours of content now and it's really smart because the way they did it too, is that you can actually buy a lot of the interviews a la carte. So if you're only interested, for instance, like in the Jim Davis interview, you can buy just that, but the, like a huge percentage of people bought the full Monty and it really speaks to the idea of, um, I used to talk about this with Know Your Meme a lot, and actually Star Wars Uncut, I think, plays to the same concept of of sort of catering to your 1% of fans, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, goes against, like, a, a lot of rules of thumb that people might, you know, whatever, 80-20 rule. There's other, I don't know, there's lots of other rules, but I, I think that when you sort of, you know, you th- again, like, it's like the think like a fan when you say, well, I love this stuff, and there's got to be at least, like, five other people out there who love this stuff, too, like, maybe I should make all of the inner the full-length interviews available it's a no-brainer you know and um and and what makes me really excited is the fact that 
it did so well. You know, it, it was such a large percentage of their sales. It was people who, who may have bought it on iTunes and may have bought it on other platforms. And there was no other way for these guys to make it available uh, except with VHX. And, and that's uh, so exciting for me because it's like, that's exactly what we've been going for is, you know, oh yeah, you got Ultimate Christian Wrestling 40 hours long. Sounds great. You know, and uh, or you're selling a short film like you can't sell shorts on iTunes. That's yeah. crazy to me. You know, that's crazy. You have a five minute film. You could sell it for a buck or something on your site. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Or uh, yeah. Or um, like one of my favorite, like I love uh, a BBC miniseries that they do. I don't know if they call it miniseries, but when they do just like a three episode run of a show, like you're not allowed to sell that on iTunes. And uh, it's it's really just like there's there's such a huge body of 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 work out there that uh was not even like way left field it's just a little bit off the normal and you would have been able to package that up in a dvd you know 10 years ago five years ago whatever you would have been able to you know crack open you know your idvd and and figure and and struggle for a while uh but eventually you would burn a dvd that it concluded all 25 hours of your super deluxe edition you'd sell a 14 disc pack or whatever and but what's crazy is that digital solutions, which are actually more flexible, easier to use, easier to get started with, lower cost, you could not. And um, yeah, what the guys are doing with Stripped, we've had we've had a couple of other series on the on the platform too that have done really innovative stuff, like uh, uh, a series called That Guy, which is uh, some YouTubers called Black and Sexy TV, where they sold the finale you know they gave a seven the seven seven episodes were free and then they sold the finale and that was one of those things where i was just like well that's not gonna work (laughs) and totally wrong uh and and you know uh like bundling movies together like i think that i think that if you had told somebody about humble bundle 10 years ago where it's like yeah we're gonna sell eight games together for pay what you want uh people would have just been like that's crazy and it's just like time and time again, we're seeing just the opposite that if you do things uh, in an interesting way, if you kind of like you make it available, you don't, you don't put a lot of caveats around it. Uh, it's, 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 it works over and over again. It works. It's, that's a very interesting. Yeah. It's a very interesting thing because you see that distribution on Kickstarter that, you know, you'll have like a $10, 15, 25, 50, 100, 250, whatever the distribution is that, uh, the higher value things are obviously picked up by fewer people, but they make such a disproportionate impact because those are the things that the fans go for. And by making them available, you're giving people a position to do the thing they want to do. They want to spend that money on you and you've given them a place to do it. I did it even with the book that I did from the magazine is we had patron levels that were literally, you know, you got everything everyone else does and we'll put your name in the book and thank you. And that represented a significant, you know, single digit percentage uh, was extra money because people wanted to offer their support directly. Um, and, you know, in, in the case of Strip, the, the breakdown as of uh, – this is late uh, May before they added additional material uh, – 50% of the revenue from VHX sales was uh, from the $50 package, the super package, which is astonishing. And it was a small percentage of sales. It was 23 – or not small, 23% of sales but almost 50% of the revenue. And it just it shows that point. Yeah, and um... – I uh, I can't speak to specifics of any one title, but uh, we we generally see uh, like for the releases we've done where it's available on both VHX and on iTunes, um, they tend to be neck and neck in terms of the volume. So 
Uh, and that's also part of why we encourage the ubiquity. You know, if somebody might find it because it's in the top 10 documentaries on iTunes and buy it there or because they loaded their Apple TV and it was featured on the front page, but then they really, really loved it and they wanted to listen to the director's commentary and they wanted to see the extras reel and they wanted to see all the rest of the interviews. And you should make that stuff available too. So we're always really happy to work with anybody in any capacity. Like if you can't sell the movie, just sell the bonus content. Like if you can't sell the bonus content, like make some new bonus content. Oh, that's, I love that. If you can make some, well, and that's the thing too with Fred and David stripped is they had all this stuff. And I think when they were making the film, they never thought about necessarily using uh, as much of it. And as it got closer and closer, they realized and talking to you guys, they realized how much value there was in it. So they had to go in and do work to clean that up and do all the stuff mm-hmm. you usually do. Not as much work as, you know, editing a film, but certainly that, there's a lot of time invested to take the interviews and turn them into something that made sense. All right. So before we get into the five hour podcast, which I know some of our <laughs> listeners like, I have one more question. You just added a new feature or it's, I should say it's in private, a private mode now, which sort of moves you towards a little bit of the Kickstarter territory without really infringing. I don't want to say infringing because it sounds like patents, but without you're not really eating their turf at all. And there's a, this sort of neat transition stage, I think, between a crowdfunding campaign and this. But you're going to offer pre-orders, and it's currently in private uh, private testing. And you, you tried it with Indie Game, the movie, too, two years ago. So I've got uh, – I'm curious about it because you're now – you're moving farther to, let's say, the left on the continuum. If the continuum is from – crowdfunding to pre-orders to actual sales of a thing that exists. You're Mm -hmm. moving towards the crowdfunding site. How uh, does that fit into this ecosystem you're building? It's just capturing more value. You know, it's helping capture interest at the time of interest. Uh, and it's also, I should note that that's actually a public feature now. We, we, we opened it up to the public, uh, I think just last week, actually, or maybe two weeks ago. Oh, you did. But so you don't have to, you don't have to apply to be accepted anymore. You can just do pre-orders. Yeah. And so we have actually, we have a ton of kind of like, uh, features that we're always beta testing Mm -hmm. just kind of haven't fleshed out some of the details, but the pre-order is one critical difference of, of what we do, uh, in contrast to Kickstarter and other crowdfunding platforms is, um, we don't actually charge the pre-orders until you release it. So We consider it to be, you know, if you think of it as the crowdfunding as like uh, the window before the thing even exists, that might only be uh, the the core of the core of your audience or something, for instance. And uh, you can arguably charge kind of higher rates, too, because it's a thing that doesn't exist yet and you have kind of a deeper level of obligation. There's rewards associated with it. Whereas the pre-order, it's like... We always tell people that basically the second your crowdfunding campaign is over, you should set up a site with VHX or, or add our widgets to your site if you already have one, but you probably don't, um, and uh, start offering pre-orders. And you should incentivize it too. I always encourage people to add some kind of incentive where, you know, oh, this is going to be, this is a discount off of what it's going to be later, or you can do instant grats, or you could just give it to them early. Like even if it's only 24 hours early, that's enough to really justify me opening my wallet today. Oh, I see. And um, yeah, and it really is just, it, to me, it's this kind of this thing where it's like, like the time that I'm most excited about, uh, seeing a movie is about two seconds before the trailer is over. <laughs> um, and I wish that was the the part where it had a pre-order now, because like, especially when I go to a movie theater and they're showing me my, my 20 minutes of trailers before the movie starts, if I could just like buy that on my phone, even though it wasn't out yet, I totally would. Like, I'm really excited about it. And that's the same idea, right? Of like closing those gaps between interest and availability. It's, it's making it, uh, you know, yes, I will take your, yes, I will accept your money, even though I don't have the product yet. 
Well, it, but the, I think the issue that you're not charging, like that is the separation then between, say, pure crowdfunding and and the pre-order stage is that you're not charging until the thing's delivered. So people have uh, – filmmakers have the anticipation at whatever point it is, if it's 24 hours ahead or, or whenever, they have the anticipation of knowing what money awaits them when they fulfill – versus receiving the money up front and then having to go through the process of making sure to meet expectations. That's right. Yeah, and the pre-order is, is, is incredibly valuable business intelligence of knowing what refers are converting, knowing what countries are converting. Um, that was one of those things that was hugely important for James and Lissan from Indie Game the Movie because they knew that a huge percentage of their, their interest base, of their fan base, was international. And they were going to have just you know, just a North America release, and they were like, "That's totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to piss off, you know, let's call it sixty percent, fifty percent of our of our most hardcore fans." And so, um, I mean, that's why we, we always encourage people to set up a website. Like, you know, the the order of operations is like pick a title, buy the domain name, set up the website, you know, then start working on the movie because you can be capturing email addresses for a mailing list. You can be kind of just getting the word out there. It takes a while to build SEO. But you can also start offering pre-orders and things like that where you're actually just uh, identifying your conversion funnel a little bit better and sort of getting to know your audience and you're collecting email addresses of people that you can ask questions to, you know, you can invite feedback. And and stoke them up. Obviously, those are your most dedicated people and they can be helping to spread the word as the Kickstarter folks did with uh, with Strip to drive it to the number one documentary on the day it was Absolutely. released on Amazon. Yeah. Which is, they beat Justin Bieber on that day. Oh. Thank God, which was great, right? But so, the, but but that is that thing is that is that if you identify the people, Kickstarter is one way to identify them, and it sounds like pre-order is another way to identify people who are invested in your success enough that they're going to pay you money or commit to paying you money before uh, they act, before the trigger is actually pulled. Yeah, that's right, and it's not you know it's not for everybody, but neither is the sixty-five dollar incredibly awesome package. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't need to make everything for everyone. Like it's okay to make stuff for that one percent. In fact, maybe you should be designing everything for that, and then sort of scaling it down from there. Like you know, design for you know, I'm crazy about internet memes, right? So I made a website that's just I was like, I want the articles to be really long, and everybody was like, oh, it needs to be tweet sized, and I was like, I can't tell the whole story in a tweet. Um, I'm going to make them really long and I have lots of graphs cause I love graphs. And it's like, uh, you know, if you, th- that's the thing that I always tell filmmakers too, especially when people are kind of talk at film festivals and they're talking with distributors and things is that, that they, they know their audience better than anybody because they are their own audience. And they also are probably in touch with people who are like themselves and, if something feels off to them, um, it's definitely going to feel off to their fans. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's really about like listening to that like inner fanboy uh, and 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 using that as your guiding principle rather than sort of listening to what the so quote unquote professionals tell you. Well, it sounds like you have an enormous well of advice to offer people who are both <laughs> existing filmmakers and I mean that's the interesting thing about this market too is that because you're uh, you have a different orientation and motivation to get the folks you work with to succeed and not that studios don't but because you're trying to achieve the largest possible participation and because you don't care the length of the film the nature of the film the rest of that that's not your your interest is in facilitating this happening it seems like you are now going to assemble the you know uh, this generous pool of information that also happens to benefit your business but this pool of information about what works that's going to help people 
then achieve these goals. And, you know, that could be somebody could make a five-minute film that's extremely interesting that formally would go up on YouTube, but they might choose to take it to a paid platform and charge a very small amount of money from it and, and maybe make it be part of what they do. It doesn't have to be their full living. They might only make $500 off it, but that might right. actually be preferable to them in terms of the exchange that they've made uh, in, in producing it. Yeah, and I think keeping that connection, essentially like knowing the email address of your customers is something that uh, is is incredibly value. It's undervalued by by most people who are sort of getting started with this. But you know, a mailing list like knowing who your fans are. Uh, I, I mean, imagine if you had if you ran like a, a retail store in the real world and you like had a hood on all day and had no idea who your customers were. Uh, you'd be making bad decisions and mm-hmm. you wouldn't be and you know and you weren't like paying attention to your inventory you know you didn't know which products were actually selling or not uh and it's it's you're operating with total blinders whereas there's there's this internet model which is not new at all like it's something that is actually <laughs> pretty well understood now you know it's still early days but it's 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 we get how to do internet marketing and how to do social media marketing and how to how to reach fans how to build that audience and it's different for every title. It's different for every subreddit, you know, and, and, uh, it's different for every vertical. It's different for, for every group of people, but it's especially because it's like, if you're committed enough to something to actually be working in that space, you're probably very in touch with your customers and you know what they want. And if not, you know how to find out more. So we're just trying to enable that. Yeah. We're just trying to connect those two (laughs) dots together. And, and what's funny too, is we've even tried to structure our business model. Like we, we don't, there's no sign up fees or anything. Like we only make money when you, when you make money, you know? And, uh, so it behooves us to figure out what works. It, it behooves me to admit when I'm wrong about what (laughs) will and will not sell, because then we're going to just, you know, go all in on what actually is selling. (laughs) Well, people should check out all the information and useful stuff at your site. And I think that's the nice thing. There's a no, no penalty to try it out when people have projects or are planning them. I think this lowers the bar to people experimenting, which is always a great thing. And it's, 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 um, the gatekeepers, uh, like even Apple's app store, for instance, because no one knows whether their app will be approved and when that, uh, imposes a chill over development. And your model is, is, uh, in opposition to that. So people can find you at Victor Hugo X-Ray, VHX.TV. Uh, there'll be links in the show notes to everything we talked about. And, and, uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Glenn, thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure. You can now support the production of this podcast directly at patreon.com slash new disruptors. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash new disruptors. Support us at a level that starts at $1 per month. At higher levels, you can get our thanks on the air, t-shirts, and more. You can also sponsor this show. Visit podlexing.com, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G, for more details about how to get your product or service in front of the attractive and clever listeners of The New Disruptors. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com. And our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We're also a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at the-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.